Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Mabel Wadsworth Center, providing comprehensive sexual and reproductive health services to people in northern and eastern Maine since 1984. Insurance, Maine Care, self-pay accepted, and reduced fees for uninsured clients. MabelWadsworth.org. The time is 10.01, and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and streaming online at WERU.org. Healthy Options with your host, Rhonda Feynman, is up next. Good morning. I'm Rhonda Feynman, and today we'll be exploring different approaches to the issue of addiction. Our guest, Cheryl Jakes, is a non-traditional counselor whose intuitive counseling has been based on communication, group process, women's studies, and spiritual awareness. Cheryl's work now is focused on the belief that we must understand the changes we need to make for the sake of ourselves and the planet. And, of course, we all need to learn how to tackle addiction as a family, community, and societal disorder. Welcome to Healthy Options, Cheryl Jakes. It's good to have you back. You have been here before and talking about post-traumatic stress disorder. I wonder if that topic may sneak into our conversation today. We'll just have to see. Um, And uh, welcome, Cheryl. Good morning. Great. Minnesota. Right there. We're We're talking to Minneapolis today, Minnesota today. So a lot of focus about addiction has primarily been on the individual. But now, and we know, that there's a growing awareness that addiction is a cultural issue and larger than just the individual. Can you give us your take on this, what you've learned in your experience from this, about this? Well, I think that addiction is not understood very well in the first place. And that in order to assist someone in your community or your family whoever it is, if you're going to help them, you're going to have to help yourself. And the lack of understanding, we we say, oh, it's, it's an illness. We've been saying that now for, I don't know, 30, 40 years. But I don't think that people really believe that. They still tend to react to an addict as if they have, um, you know, a, a lapse in moral ability to really be in their humanness, okay? And so the family, I think, has to end up forming a circle around their addict to either try to control them or protect them or in some way to save themselves from the kind of judgment that the community puts out onto the addict. And so the family or the community, they can really get caught in this. Um, It really is an illness, but I wonder how many people really understand that. In my own practice, I see that all the time, that when say, yeah, 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 it's an illness, it's an illness. But they don't really understand that an illness means that this is something inside them in their brain it's in their dna it's in the receptors of their brain and they don't really have the kind of control to just make a value judgment say oh okay i'm not going to do this anymore that the people that can 
take that attitude of I'm just going to get through this, I'm just going to tough it out, boy, they're in the minority. And we really need newer, better ways to deal with addiction in our society because it, it's really tearing at the fabric of who we are. And I'll move on from there. The more pain there is in the culture, pain in the society, pain, emotional pain, physical pain, any kind of pain, the more pain there is, the more susceptible we are to addiction because the reason people use addictive substances is to stop pain, bottom line. It's to feel better. And so the more pain there is in culture, the more addiction there is in the culture. You went. Back, you said something earlier I'd like to go back to about um, this idea of toughing it out or, and the minority of people. Can you explain that a little bit more, what you meant? We know it's in our a, a brain. We say the illness, people don't believe it, that there's something in the brain uh, that would make someone in the same amount of pain, one person become addicted to a substance, another person not. You know, mm-hmm. what do you mean by tough it out? Well, tough it out is the approach where, you know, cold turkey, you... You lay down your your cigarette or your bottle or your needle or whatever it is that is, you know, your drug of choice. You lay it down and you say, I'm just not going to do that anymore. And that whether you have support or not, you just say, I'm not going to do it anymore. The odds of succeeding that way are really small. Most people, um, if you look at the the classic right now, which is cigarettes and how profoundly addictive cigarettes have become more and more so, that the the odds of just going cold turkey, just saying, that's it, I'm not going to do that anymore, you may have the heart for it, but your brain is going to fight you every step of the way. And the same is true of alcohol and certainly the opiates. It's, it's your brain is working against you every step of the way. And even after you're off the substance, your brain is going to keep fighting. It's going to say, I want to feel okay. I want to feel good. I want to feel happy. I want to feel serene. I, I want to not be in stress. And maintaining sobriety with your body fighting you every step of the way and thinking, well, what, does it take seven days? Oh, no, it takes a lot longer than seven days. Just because, say, they say it takes seven days to get the nicotine and all the other chemicals from cigarettes out of your system. Seven days may do that, but seven days does not take care of what goes on in your brain. And that can take years. And I know that because I've I've been a smoker and I've worked with other people who have given it up and they're still struggling. Years later, they're still struggling. The same is true of alcohol. That even after a year, two years, three years, an alcoholic really still is struggling one, one drink away from falling off the edge again. And it it isn't moral lapse. Did I answer your question yet, Rhonda? <laughs> I think you did. Um, the The idea of, of support then 
So we do have this idea of something in an individual in our biology happening. So that is an individual situation. However, that you mentioned the pain and this whole idea of the societal issue mm-hmm. influencing the individual. But then we also had the, the, the idea of the societal atmosphere what's acceptable what's not acceptable how do we how do we bridge that behavioral or is it class is it economics is it opportunity what 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 are we saying so we're we have the individual we need support and by the way there will be a list of of local main support offices and 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 services that are available that will be listed and you know you're in minneapolis you probably have your own uh list as well and it'll be on the website when we archive all of this but right now we're talking about the the general atmosphere the the what encourages what supports being an addict what supports getting off being an addict what the first thing i think is education and that we need to get the info clear. We need to be giving the right, clear, honest information about addiction to addicts and to the family. That is huge because if we're not getting the straight story, if we're not really getting the data, we don't have a starting place. The other thing that I've become aware of, and this is is not because I learned it at a class or anything, it's just from my own work with individuals, with people who are either recovering addicts or they're part of a family that has experienced it from childhood or what, that the piece that I see that is missing when people are in recovery is compassion. And that the lack of compassion, which again, if you're looking at, this is an illness. This is not a moral failure. This is not a, a flaw in who you are. This, you know, this really is an illness. And that place of compassion of staying with your family member without um, getting in their way, it's like a family that's dealing with addiction has a couple of options. One is they just close their eyes and they do the denial thing and they go away. They just say, I just can't deal with you. You're a heroin addict. I'll just get out of my life. Stay away from me. What? And then there is, you know, the other end of it where um, I am going to, I'm, I'm going to lock you down. I'm going to suffocate you with my love and care. I'm, I'm going to do everything within my power to control this thing that has you and that either way we call that codependence is whether your response is to completely go away or to completely try to control the person and their addiction uh, those things are the codependency and that just really doesn't work at all there is a middle ground and the middle ground is not controlling not suffocating and not abandoning how do you let go without going away how do you maintain an attitude of compassion how do you 
bring yourself to a place where you understand that this person is not choosing to screw up their life or your life or anybody else's life. That their pain, that the pain that they're in is a pain that you might never understand. Hope you never do. And that when they say, I am in this terrible, terrible pain, it's time people started believing it and understanding that that's true, that they are in terrible, terrible pain, a kind of pain that if you're not an addict, and I don't know, I think a lot of people are addicts. We addict in a lot of different ways. But that pain is something that we need to understand on a deeper level. So when you go into a treatment program or a treatment center or an AA group or, or all the different ways, that's the one piece, that compassion that says, I understand that you are in so much pain and you're doing this because you hurt. And that's the only reason you're doing it is because you're in pain. You're not doing this because it's fun. You're not doing this because it's, it's party time. It may have started that way, but an addict is not in that place. So we have to, you know, within our our healing communities to say, okay, there are a lot of different ways to heal. And they're holistic and they're traditional and they're spiritual. We need all of those things, and we need all of those things available to all of the people all the time. That may sound a little unrealistic, but I think the health and well-being of our society means we have to really focus on why are people in this much pain? Why do they hurt so much that they are so vulnerable to addiction? Why Why have so many soldiers become addicts? How do you convince somebody to stand out in a minefield and kill or be killed? How do you convince someone that that's a cool thing for them to do without some way or another saying, okay, how do we deal with this level of pain? And so to me, recovery from addiction means we really have to deal with the fact that our society is up is in trouble and you know people are hurting they're hurting financially they're hurting morally um, and it makes them each of us it makes us all more vulnerable because nobody wants to hurt if you are just joining us this is Healthy Options, and on WERU Community Radio, I'm Rhonda Feynman. We're speaking with Cheryl Jakes, a non-traditional intuitive counselor who for decades has been working with clients who are dealing with the challenges of addiction and other issues related to this as well. So what are you seeing in your practice? How are people responding? What, 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 what are you offering them? What's, what's happening and in, in that healing situation mm-hmm. um the first thing is to create a space where a person can come and sit down with me and and say it out loud i am i am having trouble with alcohol or i'm having trouble with opiates or i'm having trouble with the person in my life that's having trouble with alcohol. 
is to make a space where they can address that out loud. That's the most important thing, is creating safe spaces where people can tell the truth. And once that happens, to, to help them, I have found that my tendency is to let the pressure off, to be able to communicate that I know you didn't choose this, and I know that you gave into this because you were in pain. Talk to me about the pain. Talk to me about what happened that brought you to a place where you were in so much pain that you had to go to such great lengths to get out of it, to get away from it, or to just endure it. And actually, I'm finding more and more that, for one thing, with the, um, the opiate stuff is that people are in physical pain, and they're given the option of you don't have to be in that kind of physical pain. We're going to give you these drugs, and then you won't be in pain. And it works for a tiny bit, and it doesn't. But I think we all know the story of how that has gotten really messed up. So when I'm with someone, I look at what the access point is for them. Is is this person able to look at their pain and tell the truth about it and get the support they need? And is it a spiritual pathway for them? Or is this someone who is, you know, wholeheartedly willing to, to say, I'll change my diet, I'll change the air in my house, I'll get rid of the cat, whatever it is. <laughs> and to, they start to look at what they can change. And I can't decide for someone what they should change. What I can do is I can make an opening with them, for them, for them to figure out what they can change. Because any change that they make is a step in the right direction. And so if, if I'm with someone, that's my whole goal is what do you want to change? And if the only change that's made available to them is stop using, that they're after shut down right away. Mm. Okay. So the reason I'm bringing this up, because Cheryl Jakes, our, our guest today, is practicing in, in Minnesota, but this, these kinds of of parameters to find someone to work with a, a, a center or an individual, depending on your circumstance, these are the things to look for. What kind of safe space is being created? What kind of compassion? What kind of holding? And then what kind of options are you being offered? Would, would you say that that's true, that we can really extrapolate this to, a, uh, to the goal of, of good support, good therapy, yeah. good support, would be these kinds of, of uh, items, these kinds yeah. of, of... Absolutely. The more that is made available for a person who's going into a treatment program, um, the more that's made available to them in terms of what they can choose to use to heal, uh, the attention on a wide variety, um, you know, is their treatment program going to give them 
healthy food? Is it going to offer massage? Is it going <laughs> to um, give them uh, some spiritual backup that means something to them within their own particular spiritual belief? Um, the more you can offer, the better. Because you just don't know what doorway is going to open for what person. We're all different. We're all unique. And we can accept help in different ways. So, yes, the more. The more that you offer, the better. If I was looking for a treatment program for myself or for someone I loved, I would be looking for the model of how much can you offer here? Are you open? Are you open to... Um, dietary changes, as well as, you know, spiritual support systems? Are you open to medical intervention? Are you open? I'd want to know that they were open on many, many levels. So we are, of course, not of course, but we are approaching this. These are the individuals who are perhaps functioning or just starting to not function. We don't know. But the idea is that there there is a choice here for some people. I'm going to go see Cheryl now. I'm going to go find a, a, a drug counselor. I'm I'm realizing I have a problem. I, I better go to rehab and I get... There's that where you're making choices and you're at that stage. There are also the individuals and there's also a group where it's forced. You've done something... Now you are in a program, so you don't have those choices. And maybe this isn't the place to discuss that, but I want to just make that distinction that we're talking about, you know, the, the idea of, of perhaps there is a degree of how people uh, have functioned. We talk about the um, functioning alcoholic, right? I did remember a story of someone who was a CEO in Manhattan and was a heroin addict, and he used to take his Mercedes into very difficult neighborhoods to get his stuff. And it was, oh, don't hurt this car because, you know, he's just a customer. And then he would get his fix, and then he would go down to Wall Street and do, you know, million-dollar trades and such. Until, of course, his liver gave out and he couldn't do it anymore. <laughs> so there was, there was a, there was there a moment right, where you're not functioning anymore. But I'm just saying that there's this level. So he it had resources. It will eventually kill you. Right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so uh, you know, have you, we, in Al-Anon and, and Alcoholics Anonymous, those are, I guess, what we know mostly as, as a weigh-in for a lot of people. Um, and that we've known that from years ago. Uh, and um, but there's also the um, the idea of of someone in your position or someone saying, wow, you're willing to do this, but it's clearly you need more help. You need a residential place. You need something more. How did you determine that or how 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 does that get? How does someone get plugged into those kinds of um, situations? I guess that was you know, a multi-question. Go for it, Cheryl. Well, the thing <laughs> is, it, it's, it's like we have to talk about money, all right? Um, because not all options are available to many, 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 many people. That, you know, the economics of our healthcare system, and it, it's like addiction, 
um, treatment has not really been fully integrated into our healthcare system even. I mean, we have miles and miles to go. So there's that. There's the difficulty with actually finding a place that works and that is affordable. And, I mean, maybe the first thing is to find out if there is a place that even exists. And I say, especially people in rural areas, sometimes the the access, like, okay, what? You're going to leave your life. You're going to leave your family. You're going to leave your responsibilities, and you're going to go into treatment for a month in a city that's, you know, an hour and a half away. And what happens to your family while that's going on? What do they do? Where do they go? And what what's available to them? Okay? So there is that piece, the money piece. And the beyond the money piece is... Let's see, go back to your question, Rhonda. My brain went off in another direction. Um, how do you know when someone needs something that's residential? Sure. I think if a person is a heart is is using is drunk and cannot function in their daily life, certainly they need to be in a protected place where they don't have to think about other things. But that isn't always all that helpful. Sometimes, you know, being in a protected, isolated place isn't the best choice for some people. There is no, there is no shoe that fits every foot. It's unique to each situation. Um, I have seen situations where parents step back and said, I won't allow my 14-year-old to come home. My 14-year-old has to go into the treatment program now because what they're doing is hurtful to themselves. It's hurtful to others or it's hurtful to the community. Um, and it might be down the block. There might be someone else who says, bring this kid home because we're going to take care of this. And we're going to get them to support groups, and we're going to get them to church, or we're going to get them, you know, to the acupuncturist. We're going to do all of these things, and that may work just fine. There is no, ever no easy, right choice. Each situation has to be looked at like it's brand new. And I know that it doesn't necessarily make it easier for people to make decisions, but that's the reality. Uh, if a person is being arrested, chances are they're going to be in a they're going to be in a treatment program. And you know, a lot of, of what we have as prisons now really are, you know, really just bad treatment programs or no treatment programs. And right. We just had a, uh, a in, here in the in Belfast in in the Mid Coast, Maine. Uh, many of our listeners could have been there and taken part, and I know that some of the um, the keynote speaker is going to be the the uh, the speech and the program presentation was recorded and it will be presented on WERU. And for those listening live, uh, it will be tomorrow. That's November seventh, ten a.m. right here on WERU eighty nine point nine FM, and uh, it was all about 
art as intervention, what's art got to do with it, the opioid crisis and addiction. And one of the things they talked about a lot was connection is the opposite of addiction. Connection is the opposite mm-hmm. of, and Absolutely. that was a mantra at one of the performances, and I think the, the takeaway, connection is the opposite of addiction. Absolutely. I, I can't agree more. Um, even with, with Alzheimer's patients, they've discovered that a person who is, you know, really losing it because of Alzheimer's, if they can bring them to a place where they do art, that they can tap into a part of their brain that is, is functioning way, way better and give them something that they can't possibly get through any other channel. Art as a, a tool understand and connect uh, is, is essential. Any treatment program that doesn't include that is really missing the boat. So, yeah, so Gupta, uh, 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 Vijay Gupta, who's started, he's a classically chain, trained violinist from the L.A. Symphony, starts something called Symf- uh, Street Symphony, where he's going into uh, areas and learning and bringing music and having music go both ways between those in Skid Row and those everybody in the community just healing through music. Um, other people talking about storytelling, and we talked with uh, Gerard Stripnicki last month all about how that story and listening to each other has healed community. So when we're talking about individual cases, again, coming back to the societal connection. So what you're we're talking about here is if you are in trouble, you need to call 911. If you are in trouble, you need to, you know, possibly find the resources. And again, we'll have lists of what's available here in Maine. Um, that kind of thing is so valuable. And when we get to that pain part that you've been discussing, we need to also look at the bigger societal picture. Mm-hmm. If you just yep. if you just tuned in, by the way, I'm Rhonda Feynman. You're listening to the Healthy Options Program on WERU Community Radio. We're discussing different ways of looking at and treating addiction with our guest, Intuitive Counselor Cheryl Jakes. Now, also, just for a, a quick moment, um, we are in the middle of our pledge drive. And to donate, uh, which, of course, we all want to do, support community radio so we can have these programs, 207-469-6600, 207-469-6600, or online at weru.org. And, by the way, while we've been talking, we've received two pledges. Thank you, Sung Dog Solar, LLC, and Ann Onimus. So that's very exciting. 207-469-6600. Back. Back to, back to um, Cheryl, Cheryl Jakes. Something else occurs to me that when we're talking about how to respond, uh, that I think it's pretty important for families to get involved with the process, um, to be very vocal in, uh, I don't know, get on the board of directors, you know, really be involved in how treatment programs um, are designed and get get noisy about what we want and what we need uh, in order for our 
ourselves and our loved ones to get the healing that we so deserve. When we're you're dealing with the individual, you bring are you doing family therapy too? Are you bringing people sometimes. in? Yeah. I, you know, sometimes. I mean, over the period of years, over you know, almost 40 years, I have worked with community groups. I've worked with families, couples, uh, individuals. I'm sort of in semi-retirement now, and I work more one-on-one now. Uh, but I've done plenty of stuff with families and couples. And let's talk about this codependency part more. That There was a time in in the last 40 years when everybody was talking about codependency. It was, yeah, that was that yep. was the thing, uh, you know, almost like being it's vegan. Still, it's still a thing. <laughs> be vegan or be codependent or be both. I, really, uh, it's 20, yeah. it's 2019 now, really. So, uh Explain it a little bit more for the those who were gluten not gluten free yet. Uh, you know, tell us more about the what free codependent? the the vegan gluten free codependent. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm insulting everybody. It's all no, right. really you, bad. You, okay, very bad. They're taking back the donations. No, don't. Uh-huh. No, no, really. We're making fun in a in a loving way. You're delightful and funny. There'll be more donations. Oh, good. Thank you. All right. So <laughs> explain codependency and humor. Of course, is part is, of. You know, of, of it's less so. understood, I think, that, I, I don't know who coined the word, but codependency is so misunderstood that, you know, my personal definition is codependency was, is the best possible response we could come up with to deal with an impossible situation. And we continue to do it because it kind of worked. If you look at a child who is in a family where there is a parent that's an alcoholic and who goes into a raging fit and scares the hell out of everybody and, you know, creates chaos, that child will figure out what they need to do to not get screamed at or hit or worse yet, you know, killed in a car wreck or what, the child will try to figure out what to do to keep themselves safe. And that may mean um, bringing dad another beer. It may mean, you know, giving in to behaviors that are inappropriate. It may mean, it, it may mean that they, that child, uses poor judgment, because they're a child, certainly, in an attempt to not be caught or mistreated or, you know, at the very least, frightened. And it kind of works, you know? If you're really, you don't ever bring anybody home from school to play because, you know, dad might get weird. You can grow up and be very isolated and not want anybody around, not want to invite anyone into your home because it worked when you were a kid. It worked. So codependency is what we did to try to keep our lives as sane as possible. I, you know, I'm aware of um, a family who will go unnamed where the mom is disabled and but she is an alcoholic 
and one of her relatives and will bring her a bottle of a bottle of alcohol. Uh, she can't go out and get it herself. And say, okay, why why would someone do that? Because that's certainly a good commitment to go buy your disabled alcoholic alcohol. That falls into the category of codependency. Um, and why they do it is for the same reason the alcoholic drinks. Is they're avoiding pain and the pain of their alcoholic being really mean and nasty and impossible to live with. So, you know, they make the the medicine as they see it available. And that to me is what codependency is, is it's the way we make it just tolerable. We don't confront, we don't challenge, we just try to keep things mellow, safe, you know. Okay, that's one level of it. And then earlier you were talking, Cheryl Jakes, our guest here today, was talking about the family having the response to the the addict to getting to controlling behavior, hiding the alcohol possibly. I'm, we didn't sure. talk about that. Or, or you know, dump, dump, dumping it or getting, you know, your child, okay, well, now you're going to this. Now you have mm-hmm. to go to this therapy. Now you have to do this. How... You know, that's another... That's still, that's still codependent because in within that term, codependency, is somehow as the belief that you can control it, whether you control it by not bringing your friends home from school or you control it by dumping out all the alcohol. It still is an extreme desire to control the behavior. And that somehow you believe that what you do will make the difference. And that's not always, if ever possible. You can make sometimes make many, many changes. Um, like does the question I would wonder about is, does intervention work? That was my next question. Okay. Intervention, yes. Does intervention work? I have seen some horribly ineffective interventions that really didn't work at all. And I've seen some interventions that were done really badly and worked anyway. Hmm. And so the idea that it's the intervention that's making the difference may not be correct. It may be just the fact that if you have a family and the family comes in around and says, we love you, we are, we're loving you, we are compassionate, you know, we are genuinely on your side. If that's really true, maybe the intervention will work. But the intervention doesn't work because of what the interveners do. The intervention works because of what the addict does. What the addict, if the addict is ready for help, and the family or community can approach from a place of compassion, maybe the addict can get what they want or what they need. But without that compassion piece, and interventions are kind of useless. That's my opinion. 
probably find a lot of people that disagree with me there, but um, that's my experience over 40 years, that maybe one in four or five that works. Connection is the opposite of addiction. No, this is there's nothing to be sorry for. This is the conversation that we're having. These are this is the important nuance. This the idea of addiction in our society is so prevalent that we have to explore all avenues. We have to explore what's been done, what's working, what isn't, and ultimately, as we're finding out. We have a societal issue, but we also have the individual issue, and each case, each individual is unique. So what will work for one won't work for another. So I love that idea that, that, uh, that it's the connection, it's the compassion that might, might be one of the things that would actually – change someone to say, oh, oh, wow, okay, maybe I am ready. Maybe I'm worth Maybe I'm worth it. it. Maybe I'm worth it. If the person who is in trouble doesn't feel valued, doesn't feel like they matter to anyone, why would they change anything? Hmm. We'll just let that sit for a second. We are talking to Cheryl Jakes on Healthy Options here on WERU Community Radio. I'm Rhonda Feynman, and Cheryl uh, Jakes is an intuitive counselor who works in private practice with clients and families who are facing the difficult challenges of addiction. So that child, let's go back to that codependency, which I I did love your idea of the belief... um, The belief that you can control or the belief, the, the, really the idea of, of an attempt to be safe in some way, the attempt to mm-hmm. get out of pain in some way, codependency, the attempt to get out of pain in some way. I have all these notes here and everything is, I have that definition is scribbled in three different places. So with this codependency, so that child who wasn't bringing their friends home, who's bringing dad the extra beer, grows up. And what happens now? Well, that tendency is that they marry alcoholics or addicts. Even when they don't know it, they tend to, you know, like, because we are inclined to go towards what is the most comfortable and what is the most comfortable often is what is the most familiar um and so how does that happen why does someone who has been raised in a horribly alcoholic family system why do they grow up and marry an addict or become an addict it has to do with the that sense of the familiar that we we kind of are creatures of habit and we can't kind of tend to do what's been done, and so, you know, okay, we grow up, and then maybe we've also got that piece where we're not, for some reason, we don't really know why, but we're not comfortable inviting people in, we almost feel uneasy if, um, you know, the idea of, like, a guest company, and we tend to be isolated or what, 
depending on what it looked like when you were growing up. If you had a parent that was abusive, which is a, a different kind of addiction. It's a mental, emotional kind of even physical addiction, not based on a substance, but it's that behavior that is compulsive. That if you've been raised in a family where there was somebody who was abusive, that we know that continues to affect us as adults, that we continue to be afraid. We continue to, you know, startle easily and be afraid and avoid certain situations. I think, <laughs> how many times have I sat with someone who said, I just, you know, I can't even, I can't be in a restaurant and sit with my back to the door. I need to be in the far end of the restaurant with my back away from the door where I can see everyone in the room. If I'm with a client and I ask that client to talk to me about how do you choose where to sit in a restaurant, that will tell me a lot about that person because we continue to play it out when we're grown up. What a great question. Where do you sit in a restaurant? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we're coming back to self-worth, aren't we? This idea of fear or embarrassment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Are we safe? Are we good? Are we valuable? Are we loved? You know, the bottom line for human beings is when we feel unloved, unworthy, disconnected, um, that's, you know, say, what, the perfect storm? for addiction to set in because it does not feel good. It hurts to be alone. We're not, we're not built to be isolated and alone. We want very, very badly. If I had to, to say over 40 years of working with people, what is, what is the most frequent pain that people bring to me? And it's being alone. I don't have a partner or my partner left me or nobody loves me. I have a partner, but my partner doesn't love me. But that pain of being alone, and whether it's, it's real or imagined, whether it's about your history or about who you are in the present, that sense of being alone is what I have heard more people. That has brought more people into counseling than anything else, followed closely by money. Money? Not having enough or not ha or yeah. having too much? Yeah, hardly <laughs> ever does anybody come and tell me I need to do therapy. I have too much money. Okay. Well, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. Doesn't money make you happy? Well, yeah. That would be good, but no. <laughs> so, but, I, you know, the big ones are love and money, and it's about being alone. And if you look at what is causing people pain, then... You also, you see what's that, what's that access point? What is it that makes them really vulnerable to start using, to start drinking, to start? Because there's a difference between, you know, drink number one and drink number million and one. It, you don't become an alcoholic with your first drink. You don't become um, addicted to um, opiates with your first pill, but the access point, what was it that made you vulnerable to going down that road is really important to pay attention to. And that 
tends to be, you know, isolation, loneliness, being disconnected from people, and a society that keeps us separate from each other and is, that's a, a, a dangerous place to be. So the illusion of connection on Facebook. Mm, well, the illusion of connection. There's more to get in the way. Yes. Yeah. It does because people can be alone and think they're with other people. It's a trick. Right. <laughs> yeah. There was that an- we need to make in the same way when you're talking about music and art, that connection that we make that happens through art. I mean, art is the universal language. That, you know, you can play music and I don't care where you are, who you are, where you live, what language you speak. Music will speak to you, art will speak to you. So it breaks down the barriers. And anything that breaks down the barriers breaks down the loneliness, breaks down the despair that goes with loneliness. Yes, we're sitting here, lots of head shaking going in a positive way around here. We have about, oh, 10 minutes, eight minutes left. And I want to, we're talking to Cheryl Jakes, by the way, on Healthy Options Program. And Cheryl is a non-traditional intuitive counselor, working with clients, dealing with the challenges of addiction, and obviously other issues as well. Some people talk about the addict becoming manipulative. Some people at the conference, we're talking about from, from the Belfast uh, Art Belfast Arts Coalition and the uh, What's Art Got to Do With It conference, somebody said, well, is it manipulation or is it strategizing? Is that part of codependency? How, uh, That's someone's... a wonderful question. <laughs> yes. How do you draw the line between strategizing and manipulating? Manipulating is trying to get what you want. And whether it's what you need or not, it's trying to you know, make something happen or make something different. And it, language is, just, is very powerful. If we call it strategizing, then we don't get this negative vibe around it. If we call it manipulating, we get a negative vibe. But I don't think there is a difference. Learn, I think the person who was making that distinction was talking about learn behavior, how to survive, so you mm-hmm. learn how to strategize so you can survive. Mm-hmm. Yep. As an available, what is available in your As world? In codependency, right. you try to figure out what's going to work. Right. And if, if a child is trying to figure out what's going to work and they figure out that laying down on the ground and keeping their feet and screaming works, then, you know, they have strategized a solution. doesn't necessarily mean that their solution will be appreciated by their adults, but they strategized the solution. Did they manipulate their adults? Well, maybe, maybe not. It's up to the adult as to whether they get manipulated or not. The child is just coming up with a solution. I think addicts are trying to come up with a solution. I don't think that they're necessarily trying to manipulate someone else. I think that the adult or the family member is manipulated by their own stuff, their own history, their own pain. 
that if we're being manipulated, it's, it has to do with us more than it has to do with the other guy. So everybody is responsible, is what we're talking right. about. And then coming back to that intervention piece, that the willingness to take responsibility can either get activated or not is I think what we're really we're talking mm-hmm. about responsibility but the codependent piece is then the whole family or the whole whoever is on either whether you are the addict or you're the family or the relationship or somehow interacting with this what, what's the word uh, situation now there's a better word for it uh, we'll come up with it um, that it, everyone has their own responsibility to have the boundary going, oh, I mm-hmm. see you're strategizing, you're manipulating, whatever it is. You need to get this, but, hmm. Um. I mean, we've made it through this whole hour, and this is the first time I've heard the word boundary. Uh-huh. How did we manage that? Oh, my goodness. How did One we do that? One of the most important things to me that I learned when I was, you know, exploring and discovering what, what codependency was was the concept that I need to understand where I stop and where someone else starts. And that exploring that concept of boundaries, of where my edge is, is what allowed me to really understand what codependency meant. And well, so when you talk about Understand what? I think you fuzzed out there to explain. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Uh, to understand, but, yeah. To understand codependency, to understand manipulation, I have to understand what's mine and what's yours. I need to know where does Cheryl stop and where does Rhonda start. And that's something, you know, we all need to ponder and think about. Because when you say, uh, is, am I being manipulated, if that situation makes you choose whether you are manipulated or not. But. But. And, not a none, if you understand where you are and where someone else is, what? Explain well, it further. What, when you asked me, is it strategizing or is it manipulation? It depends on what side of the boundary you're standing on. Am I in my own space or am I over there in yours? And if, if I'm in my own space, I'm responsible. I am responsible for me and for what I do and what I don't do and what I, you know, how I respond to my feelings. If I'm outside that boundary and I have to figure out, you know, who's responsible for how you feel and what you feel and where you're going... If I have to figure out everything that applies to Rhonda, that's codependency. Because I can't. You can. I can't. So you get really clear about Cheryl. This is what I need. This is what, oh, you're Mm -hmm. saying this and you want that. Mm, Sorry, can't do that. Mm -hmm. No, you can't borrow my car. No, no, you can't. Uh No, yeah. No, I'm happy to drive you, blah, 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 but nope can't borrow it or whatever yeah that's knowing that line that's knowing that boundary and it's essential when you're in a a healing cycle with someone to know 
what your boundaries are and to understand that what that means is knowing where you stop and someone else starts. What a radical idea, Cheryl mm. Jakes. <laughs> well, there's always so much to learn. And the other thing is that this whole area of health um, as it applies to addiction and um, it's it's like it's in it in its infancy. It's growing like crazy. And what's going to show up over the next five years is going to be way more than anything we've seen in the last 15 years, and that's a result of the opiate crisis. Mm. The upside of the opiate crisis is it's forcing them to pay attention. I think... Sadly, we only have about a minute left, and this we have to continue. We just have to continue having this conversation, Cheryl. I think the opioid crisis is changing the conversation. Tomorrow on WERU at 10 o'clock, that's November 7th, there'll be a conversation with uh, Vijay Gupta, who was the keynote speaker at the What's Art Got to Do with It opioid conference. You'll listen to this program and others that will be archived. So I want to just thank you, Cheryl. The conversation has to continue. You've been on help. Thank you for joining us on Healthy Options today. If you missed any part of this program, we'd like to share it. Please go to WERU.org to find our recent programs on demand. Many thanks to Amy Brown for engineering, to Petra Hall for production assistance. A big thanks also to all of our dedicated WERU listeners and supporters. If you're not yet a member of WERU or would like to increase your support, please do so. WERU.org. Do so now. This is Rhonda Feynman, your host of Healthy Options, wishing you the best in health. Support for WERU comes.